Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, the story of 19th century murderer Lizzie Halliday. Paul Sr. set out one day with charcoal, as his job was, and when he came home, Lizzie had burned the house to the ground with Johnny in it, and Johnny died. Uh, The coroner's report, a written record, shows suffocated in a burning building, is exactly what it says. Uh, It doesn't mention injuries to the body, but apparently Paul later claims Lizzie bragged about killing Johnny, rolling him up in a carpet, and making sure that he did die in the fire, which is, which is horrific. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. So great to have as my guest today, Kevin Owen. He is an artist, author, and forensic researcher who resides in New York State, just a short distance from the scene of the crimes you will soon hear about. His book is called Killing Time in the Catskills, The Twisted Tale of the Catskill Ripper, Elizabeth Lizzie McNally Halliday. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thank you very much for the invite today. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, As the old cliche goes, long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I've been a fan of your podcast. Needless to say, I like vintage crime, and that's the subject of my book, Lizzie Halliday, which uh, is all about her time in this area, which is just to, I know you have a wide audience, so I'll just just bring it closer to home. It's the lower Hudson Valley, Catskill region. The name of the town that Lizzie was in was Burlingham, New York, and that's where she committed her crimes in 1893. So what what I like to do when I'm talking about the story is introduce people to what 
Lizzie's neighbors and ultimately her victim, her husband, Paul Halliday, what life was like. And, and up, in, up in the Catskills here, particularly in 1893, it was a beautiful, bucolic setting where, particularly in the summer, people got away from New York City, head up into the Catskills, just relax, go fishing, spend time with the family out on a boat. And that was all well and good until the summer of 1893, when Lizzie Halliday was in town. It all changed drastically that summer, as Paul's sons noticed he seemed to be missing. They hadn't seen him around his house. He spent an awful lot of time outdoors because his occupation was, he was a charcoal farmer. Basically, he cut down wood, created huge piles, burned the wood. Then you bury the wood so that it stops burning and you create charcoal and then you sell that to industry. So he had long days, hard labor, intensive labor, dirty work, and he was outdoors, but he had gone missing. No one had seen him around. His neighbors hadn't seen him around. His sons lived in the same town, and they were becoming to get worried. So they, they went up to the house, and his son, Paul Jr., asked his mother, where, where's, where's dad? Where did he go? Well, Lizzie explained that he had gone over to the next town, which is Bloomingburg, New York, to buy some property. And he had gone over to check on him. Well, his sons knew nothing of this. He had never mentioned anything about buying property in Bloomingburg, so they were very suspicious. After a short time, they, they decided to watch the house, and they were kind of hiding, and they had gotten uh, law enforcement involved, and they decided something was definitely up. They, they needed to get a search warrant. They got a search warrant, but Lizzie wouldn't let him in the house. So what they did was they decided to trick Lizzie into taking them to where Paul had purchased property in an adjoining town. And she went with uh, one of the sheriff's deputies in a wagon. She ends up taking that long drive over. Paul isn't found in the next town. No one knows where he is. She doesn't know where the property is that he bought. And meanwhile, while they're gone, they've managed to find inside the house lots of incriminating evidence against Lizzie. There's a board with blood on it. There's shovels in the house. There's dirt everywhere, dirt leading into the upstairs and, and hay. There's crowbars. Uh, there's a bloody rope. There's a bucket with things in it that look like bloody things in it that look like they were being washed. It, it just wasn't good. It didn't look good for Paul. And another thing I like to remind the listeners is this is 1893, you know, as true crime aficionados, we've, we've all been through so much, been somewhat jaded by Dennis Rader, BTK killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, all these hideous people who have come through history and just created terrible serial murder. 
So we've become somewhat jaded, but in the time of 1893, this story about Lizzie Halliday was about as bad as you can get. So in not finding anything in the house, they go out to the barn. And one of the one of the men searching finds an arm, some some limbs sticking out from under some hay. And he calls everybody in. They don't find Paul Holiday. What they find is two women in the barn who have been thrown in a basically what's a large compost pile of manure and hay, uh, farm waste. There's two women who have been bound. Their clothes seem to have been removed, except for what are sleeping wear. Uh, and they're shot multiple times, both deceased, one perhaps longer than the other. They have no idea who these women are. They ask everybody who's in the vicinity, and no one recognizes them. So they fear the worst for Paul, because they now have a double homicide on the Halliday property. And they don't know where Paul is. So they send a wire over to Bloomingburg and they tell him, you better head on, you know, tell uh, the deputy to head on back. We found something. When they get back, they confront Lizzie and she starts acting insane immediately. Now, the deputy who took Lizzie to Bloomingburg confesses that Lizzie didn't have any mental illness or symptoms of mental illness on the drive to Bloomingburg or on the way back. But now she's flecking imaginary bugs off her and she's refusing to answer direct questions regarding who these two women are and where Paul is. She's quickly brought to uh, the justice of the peace for the town. The town had no jail cell. So she's at the justice of peace and she's being questioned. She's tied to a chair. She's uncooperative. It's just not, there's no sign of Paul and they can't find him. So some of the men eventually head back to the house and one of the neighbors actually notices that the floorboards in the kitchen don't really line up with the grain with the other boards. Looks like they were removed and put back in place reversed from what they probably had been. So reluctantly, they start searching under the floorboards. They insert a crowbar. It hits something resistant. This was a house built directly on the earth. There's, there's no basement. And they begin removing soil. And sure enough, Paul Halliday is buried under the kitchen floorboards he shot multiple times in the chest, once through the uh, arm, I believe, not looking at my notes, but and his eyeball is uh, dangling from his head. He's taken a blow to the head that has knocked his eyeball uh, straight out. And they're horrified, and they're quite certain that Lizzie is guilty. And they head back to Justice Thayer's with the announcement that uh, Paul Sr., has been found, and in fact, he's dead. It's quite a shock to everyone. At that time, they contact Sullivan County to get both a coroner there and 
to have the sheriff, Sheriff Beecher of Monticello, arrange that the prisoner is transported to Monticello to be held in an actual jail, jail and um, tried for potentially murder as they attempt to identify these two women who, uh, who no one knows who they are. They have narrowed it down to they have some clothing tags that are from Newburgh area, Newburgh, New York, which is right on the Hudson River, big port community at that time. Um, so th- what happens next is that through, through a very long process, Lizzie is brought to the Monticello jail, and the district attorney, David S. Hill, begins to tr- attempt to build a case against her. Prior to moving to Monticello, she had an incident where she was brought out to an outhouse and a number of very, let's say, damning uh, items were found on her, including jewelry. Paul's pocket watch was later found. She, She went in the outhouse and the guards guarding her on the outside heard a click and they were very worried that she was about to kill herself. And then they heard something fall into the waste pit below the outhouse. So after she came out, they ordered no one else was to use the outhouse. It was going to be searched in the morning. And when they did, they found a pistol and rounds down in the outhouse. Some jewelry was tucked away and hidden inside the outhouse as if she was going to come back and get it later. It just wasn't good at all. Lizzie was looking very guilty, and the circumstantial evidence was piling up quickly. So, in Monticello, District Attorney David Hill wanted to build a case, but he had a very difficult place in that he only had this circumstantial evidence. So, what they started to try and do was find out who was this woman. Where did she come from? What was her background? As they did, they started to get a very different picture of this small, frail woman. At the time of her arrest, she was about five foot four and 105 pounds, but had a history of violence, possible murder. It turned out that she was in. It's hard to say exactly how old she was, but she was probably about 26 in in 1893. And she was on her sixth husband. Everyone was getting shocked. They found she had been married six times, divorced, never, never divorced. And the story was coming out that I, I outline in great depth in the book about each of her marriages, the volatile relationships she was in, uh, crimes that were committed during these times. It's just, it's never ending. And the other thing I'd like to get into is how, how hard it was to find all this information. There's, there's a lot of information on the internet, not only about Lizzie, about a lot of subjects, but that could be surmised in probably three, four, or five paragraphs. The, the story about Lizzie uh, was a hard one to uncover. 
And I really think that's why no one had ever written this book before. It took years of investigative research. You know, I'm starting to hear some people tell the correct story, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, right off the bat, you see articles that say she was never known to have a child. And, you know, she was childless. This is patently false. And her child is mentioned over and over that, yes, she had a child. Her child was taken away from her after, in 1888, she had moved to Philadelphia and committed arson for the purpose of insurance fraud and was sent to Eastern State Penitentiary, which I just heard on your podcast. I mean, this is woman who, from the age roughly of 15 to 26, she was a career criminal, uh, nonstop, whether it was horse theft, bigamy, arson, murder, or just threatening people. She was involved in some aspect of crime her entire life. Yeah, it's a fascinating case. Uh, Let me ask you this. How did you first come to hear about Lizzie Halliday? Well, that that is interesting because I had just finished rereading Helter Skelter, which, if your audience is not familiar with it, it, it's specifically about the Manson murders written by uh, the prosecuting attorney, with, I believe, a ghostwriter. I'm sorry, I don't know. Well, I know the prosecutor was uh, Bugalosi, I believe his last name, and the ghostwriter, I don't know. But I just finished rereading that based on some, I heard some criticism of Bugalosi's handling of the case. And and since it's such a, a strong police procedural, I really wanted to go over that and see if I felt anything about the case or the way he wrote the book seemed to to shed doubt on whether the Manson family was actually involved because that's what people were suggesting. So I reread that and I decided to do an internet search. It's like, wow, that is a horrific series of crimes. I wonder if any other horrific series of crimes have happened around me. And so I, I, I did an internet search. I found Shockingly, I found a number of crimes, uh, including an unsolved murder down the street from us, a domestic disturbance down the street that turned into another murder. This is another case. I'm not talking about the unsolved one. Other things, including the Lizzie Halliday case. So I was like, what? You know, and I started doing more research. And, and of course, say, well, this was this was over six years ago or so. You find the Wikipedia page of about five paragraphs. The Sullivan County historian who uh, I talked to directly about it, he had a brief, I believe it's three pages in, in one of his books, um, who I'm speaking of is John Conway, the Sullivan County uh, historian. And in speaking to him, he clarified to me he only included what he absolutely could find and he said there's some really hard information to find there and i found out 
the reason being there was a series of fires in Sullivan County related to the courthouse, the jailhouse, places that newspapers were stored. There was a series of very unfortunate events that led to some of the information Lizzie had um, about Lizzie's case had just disappeared. But I kind of took the role of forensic researcher, someone who uh, I'm familiar with genealogy research in that way. So I put a, a long banner on the wall next to my computer. And I said, this is Lizzie Halliday's timeline. I'm going to write born and death. One end said born, the other said death. Now I had the difficult job of filling in everything I could find between those two points. And it took years. And it took multiple locations, like I'm talking about uh, historic societies around here, going directly to libraries. I found that the most reliable reporters for that time period were the local reporters, Middletown, Monticello, other Sullivan County reporters who actually went to the scene to report. Uh, So I went to the libraries specifically in those locations and did some painstaking microfilm research and all that stuff that goes through it and managed to slowly build the case. And Towards the end, I still had some giant gaping holes, and I didn't understand why I couldn't find some information about, say, her time in Philadelphia. And what I found was she was very clever and managed to pop in a different name for a different place. So I finally got into Lizzie's head enough where I figured out what names she would most likely use or at least search for a variety of different names in, say, the Philadelphia paper. And I actually found all the articles having to do with her arson, burning her own building in 1888. And if if people don't know that story, her and her son were living in Philadelphia. She was passing herself out as a newly widowed woman and perhaps playing on the sympathy of others. She opened a storefront and out of a window, she was basically selling soup, rolls, what have you. And in 1888, one day she just decides to set the place on fire and head out into a historic blizzard. So uh, I'm not remembering the exact date of the 1888 I believe it was November, but this this was a snowstorm that had like 50 inches of snow. People, there was a huge amount of deaths. People were stranded on trains everywhere. Up and down the East Coast was a disaster. And Lizzie decides to set her place on fire and head outside. <laughs> it just is insane. So from that, she went to Eastern State Penitentiary. Yeah, we, we talk about that sometimes on this show, uh, about how some of these late 19th century characters are really hard to track down. So kudos to you for doing that. 
so let's go back to the very beginning, if you don't mind. Uh, would you share what you know about where Lizzie came from, her early years? Well, there wasn't too much publicized about Lizzie until she was getting in trouble. The only other place of information that we have from that is her family, the brothers, sisters, uh, actually replied to the Sullivan County court system and the attending physicians who were evaluating whether or not she was insane. So they, those physicians, uh, Sheriff Beecher, they tried to contact family and get some history from her. So the only thing we could say is that she, she was deaf in school dropout. Um, she had probably very little chance for advancement in society based on society structure at the time. At the time she emigrated or her family emigrated to the U.S., there was a tremendous uh, anti-Irish movement in New York City. And I believe that's why they started bringing immigrants from Ireland to Philadelphia. Because New York was practically turning into a war zone between ethnic neighborhoods. And I even came across articles, I mean, not articles, but small snippets in the paper that said, you know, New York City papers at the time, don't hire the Irish. And I mean, that's a tough world to grow up in. I can't say how directly it impacted her. Uh, just that at very best, she would ever be a household servant. And that's really where she started working as soon as she could work. She worked as a household servant, and it didn't seem to suit her well. She seemed to have conflict with the lady of the house and the rules of the house all the time. Also, her family suggested that at an early age, she did have auditory and visual hallucinations. And this is outlined in the book um, and might have suffered from some sort of major mental illness, which I'm not qualified to define, but I could say, in my opinion, there was definitely multiple things uh, going wrong, either uh, emotional or chemical imbalance, That uh, particularly chemical imbalance. There was no way that society at that time was able to help people with mental issues due to chemical imbalance. So she was on her own in that, in that way. Um, whether I have no evidence that she was abused, that, um, that her family beat her, but I do know she supposedly beat her son. Uh, her fifth husband, Hiram Parkinson reported that he, she, uh, Lizzie whipped her son without reason, was his words. And typically, people don't just hit their children, you know, unless perhaps they were hit. So, other than that, I really can't say. But people may read the book and come up with their own opinions on that. We will be back in just a few moments. 
Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week. Pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And, of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
and we have returned. Yeah, of course, we don't have to get into the specifics of each and every one of her marriages, but there was a pattern. She had a tendency to marry men who were older, veterans with pensions. Yes, exactly. Uh, from her very first husband to her very last, with possibly the exception of the fifth husband, Hiram, who was not a veteran, as you said, but he was somewhat older, as it was reported in the papers. His exact age was not given. But yes, from her very first husband, she was finding pensioners with disabilities, uh, people who she could be more powerful than, who she could abuse, um, and perhaps even with Artemis Brewer, her one husband who was said to have an opioid addiction to relieve his, his pain from his injuries in the war. She might have even used those opioids, opioids to kill him. Certainly sounds that way in the book. But yeah, you're correct in that way is that she would marry a pensioner. She would tire of them. Uh, she seemed to have a material goal in mind. And when they didn't pass away fast enough, she seemed to be pretty impatient. <laughs> she had quite a pattern there. So there are far too many stories of fraud and arson and general poor behavior to cover in our limited time here today as it relates to Lizzie. But it's pretty safe to say that almost as soon as she was on her own, she was using deception to get by. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and th that that's one thing that intrigues me is like how much about Lizzie and her past crimes do we not know? Because she was... She was someone who would travel on her own, at, much like, I don't know, a vagrant, a hobo, we think we, we might think of nostalgically, travel great distances on her own. And I can't imagine during that time that she was traveling where she wouldn't have tried to endear herself to someone in order to get something out of them and then wreak some revenge on them. Because that, to me, is Lizzie's pattern. Uh, get close, try and get something out of them, get sick of the situation, and then bring it all down in a giant fire. <laughs> and I can't imagine that she didn't travel the countryside setting fire to people's homes as she left them. That's just how I envision Lizzie, uh, and we have no record of all that. But I can picture it. She was quite a wildcat, is, is, is probably a polite way to say it. And there is some documentation that she associated with some pretty unsavory characters, including a criminal named Levi Rogers. Yes, correct. Um, during that time, uh, Burlingham, and they have a mountain range there, and it's called the Shawangump Mountains, and that's a Native American word. Uh, we have a lot of indigenous names around here still. But up on that mountain range, it was known as somewhat of a 
they called it a bandit hideout or gypsy encampments. There was also a group that Levi Rogers might have been part of, which was called, I reference in the book, the Newburgh Bridge Gang. And the first time Lizzie ends up in an insane asylum, two of these members of the Newburgh, Newburgh Bridge Gang get transferred to the mental institution where she is from Sing Sing, assault Lizzie, and then the the management of the facility says, oh, you're no longer mentally ill. You get transferred back to Sing Sing. So well, we can only speculate that this might have been some sort of, you know, organized, like, let's get Lizzie attack rather than just random. Um, the Newburgh Bridge Gang, you know, and, and it sounds like harmless, like the little rascals or something, but they they were known to stop people on the roads and rob them. And this happened around here all the time. And oddly enough, part of Lizzie's confessions later to a young man she calls Nancy, as well as um, uh, Nellie Bly, her confessions involved gangs stopping people on the roads, robbing them, and then killing them. And she blames a gang of this, you know, this type of gang for the killings that happened at her house. And I think that's something else that we learned from looking at Lizzie's patterns is that she creates stories that somewhat involve the truth and somewhat involve a very elaborate fiction that keeps her from being directly involved, where she was innocent. She was watching the whole thing go down. So I think Levi Rogers, in that sense, was a known criminal in this area. He served time. He would go into jail, come out of jail, commit crimes. He was known for living in the woods around this region. He would hide out in the mountains. And he might have had, had relationships with other people who hid out in the mountains. And it'd be very easy to get to some of these locations from, say, Newburgh, where Lizzie was a household servant when she first came up into this region. Or even when she was living with Paul, she could have easily slipped away into these uh, wooded regions where either transients were camping, bandits, highway bandits, and somehow she was tough enough to convince them that she wasn't someone who's going to be robbed, she was going to be doing the robbing. Right, right. And there's a, something that she hints at later on about whether this Levi Rogers was connected to the murder of a peddler, Samuel Hotch. Yeah. Uh, the, the peddler... Samuel Hulch, as you said, was a Russian immigrant. He would travel the area with a pack, selling small trinkets, jewelry, fabric. And he would, there's uh, up in the mountains, mountain range here, there's, a, there's lead mines. Well, they were active for years. And Samuel Hutch was found dead in the mines. 
And during her incarceration, Lizzie let on that she knew something about this, who did it, but wouldn't say because, once again, that these people would come out of the woodwork and get her somehow, even though she's safely tucked away in jail. And they did say that at the time of Lizzie's incarceration, when she was in jail and confessed to knowing something about this, uh, Levi Rogers was in jail himself. He had been arrested for stealing um, a wagon, and I guess the wagon had supplies or something. And he actually went over county lines, so he ended up being arrested in another county. They did say his wagon had blood on the buckboards of the wagon when there was blood. So it's speculation, but, you know, as we know from being true crime fans, that the only way you're going to try and figure this out is looking at it a lot differently than everybody's been looking at it before and uncover as many new clues as you can because Lizzie didn't say much to implicate herself. But if you can try and read between the lines, there's a lot there. And particularly her interview with Nellie Bly, there's an awful lot there. I, I definitely want to ask you about that um, because Nellie Bly just fascinates me to no end. We, we've talked about her on this podcast before, but Lizzie's relationship with her husband, Paul Halliday, I, I'd like to explore that more with you. Because we can make some general assumptions about her relationships with her other husbands based on what we know about how she interacted with Paul and how he treated her. And a lot of this comes to light after she murdered him. You, you theorize that he was attracted to her uh, because she was young. She could cook, she could clean, and he needed help with those things as, as a bachelor in his uh, mid to upper 60s, right? If I'm wrong on that, please correct me. Um, at the time of his his death, well, his gravestone actually lists his age as 70 at the time of his death. I thought, but but the gravestone doesn't list his birth, so you can't prove that. But I thought he was 72 at the time of his death. Again, I could be wrong. I... I think, you know, a year or two here or there, it doesn't matter. What matters is what happened and and the facts around it. And, yeah, there might have been a relationship of convenience where it was kind of like an employer-employee. That was the way it was intended to be. She was to be brought in as domestic help. And then shortly, and I mean very shortly, within three months, I believe, they got married. Um, the sister sister, her sister, I believe her name was Nancy, had said some derogatory things about Lizzie and her attitude towards men. So you can imagine that Lizzie might not have been like most Victorian women in uh, prudish in that way. But I can't say what actually happened, but one of the doctors, uh, Lizzie's made a, a pretty gross insinuation that it was all of sexual nature, the reason that Paul keeps her around, which uh, I don't really understand because that same doctor released Lizzie into his care 
and then she killed him. Right. But I'm safe in saying that his children, which he had had before, of course, she came into the picture, did not like her. She did not like them. And he had a son named Johnny, whom you suggest suffered from an intellectual disability. And she especially disliked him. Apparently, she couldn't stand Johnny. Um, All we know is that he was in some way developmentally disabled. The census records for that time period uh, state that he's a uh, farm laborer. So he was he was able to do some work. We don't know what that was. And we also know he was fond of whittling. But apparently Lizzie could not stand him. But from what we know, she didn't tolerate any of Paul's relatives was intolerant of anybody um, and made their lives difficult. So, yeah, unfortunately, Paul Sr. set out one day with charcoal, as his job was, and when he came home, Lizzie had burned the house to the ground with Johnny in it. And... Johnny died. Uh, The coroner's report, a written record, shows suffocated in a burning building is exactly what it says. Uh, It doesn't mention injuries to the body, but apparently Paul later claims Lizzie bragged about killing Johnny, rolling him up in a carpet, and making sure that he did die in the fire, which which is horrific. And a short time later, the barn burned down. She definitely had a thing for fire, which is is a little unusual for a woman, but I think Lizzie kind of has uh kind of crosses multiple genres in in you know the type of killing and mayhem that she's capable of producing. And she spends a wild day on her own, getting into all sorts of trouble which gives us a a general idea of how she lived her life when not confined to an isolated farmhouse. Would you tell us more about that day? Yeah, after after burning the house down and the barn, um, the couple, this is Paul Sr. and Lizzie, decided to go to Newburgh to purchase some new horses. Now, this is where my story varies from many, many stories you have on the internet or elsewhere, where they just kind of paraphrase this into a sentence and a half that Lizzie eloped with a neighbor and stole a team of horses. This lacks any detail when you say it like that, and it sounds bizarre. She eloped with a neighbor. No, she did not elope with a neighbor. While in Newburgh, She woke up early. She managed to take all the money from Paul's pockets as he's sleeping and slips out. Instead of having money now to go buy horses, Lizzie has decided she's going to rent some horses in a Surrey, which is basically just a covered carriage. Any of the tourists who came up here over the summer could do the same thing, rent a horse in a Surrey tour the beautiful countryside, enjoy the views uh, of the Catskills, of the Hudson Valley region, bring your 
horse in Surrey back, and that was it for the day. Well, Lizzie decided she's going to come up with a new plan. She decided to make some profit off this. She was going to trade off the horses. She was going to sell the Surrey and just take some other buggy. And um, most comments at the time were that she was trading downward the whole time. She was just getting rid of the evidence. And in order to rent the Surrey, she had to have a husband or someone pose as a husband to go with her. Uh, I, I imagine it has something to do with the Victorian time period or whether she had proper ID, who knows. Uh, so she found a basically a Newburgh local to pose as her husband and spend the day with her riding around and committing this crime of trading off, selling off the horses for profit. And she actually ended up almost back towards their home in, in Burlingham and almost selling off one of the horse or buggy to a, a neighbor, you know. So the whole thing just doesn't make sense in terms of if you were a criminal trying not to get caught at something, it sounds more like a mental breakdown of sorts. And what we find is that after Lizzie is arrested, She's having her first real breakdown where she's incarcerated, but she is unable to answer questions directly. She's peeling off her clothes. She's kicking over objects and just being uh, foul mouthed, which again at the time was very unusual for a woman, and and violent. So in that way, we get a hint at what Lizzie's capable of. And oh, that I wanted to mention that in itself was another story that was hard to find. Her Newburgh incident in uh, June of, that was 1891. And it was because when she got to court, she gave them a fake name. Once again, she was already immediately into the old habit of using an alias. Um, her name was Jenny Wilkinson, where she came up with that. And her husband herself didn't even know she was in jail until someone told him. And he headed over to find out, where's my wife? Where's my money? Uh, demanded her release when, he, when the judge would not release her, would not release his money. He tried to confess to the judge that Lizzie had killed Johnny in a fire, and the judge had to explain to Paul that that happened in another county. Why didn't you report it there? And Paul did not give the judge a solid answer, so I can't tell you the answer to that question myself. Yeah, you write that when she was caught, she was sitting under a tree with a look of sheer bliss on her face, talking about ascending into heaven on a piece of rope. Right. Yeah, that was that was a quote in the newspaper article, and I thought it was so unique that I included it, and I didn't attempt to decipher what possibly could be going through her head, uh, just leaving it up to the reader. 
So uh, to me, it, it, it was a moment where you said either the woman has lost her mind or she's on some sort of drug. And, you know, that's just wild speculation, which I try not to do <laughs> too often. Um, so in most likely, it was, it, she had sent her companion out, the, 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 the one who she supposedly eloped with, to go get that piece of rope. So he was missing at the time and wasn't even arrested at the same time as Lizzie, which is, which is also unusual. The guy, yeah, sure, sure, Lizzie, I'll go get a piece of rope. I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine that conversation, but. The, the frustrating part in reading about this relationship between Lizzie and Paul, she kills his son Johnny, burns down his house, robs him of his money, and he still shows up every day at the place she's being uh, confined in. And he's constantly asking to take her home, which especially infuriates his son, Paul Jr. Yeah. Um his children, the closest to him, would have the deepest understanding of, of their father's motives or trying to understand their father's motives. And they could not understand his uh, just, I'd say, overwhelming desire to have her back in the house. Uh, I, I do give, try to give a comprehensive history to Paul Sr., and his time, you know, he, he was a veteran. He served in the Civil War. He was an entrepreneur in that he tried to better himself, his station in life, obviously. But he had a hard time after his uh, wife passed away, the, the wife that was the mother to his adult children. And he needed to find household help. My only thought is that without. Lizzie, he wouldn't have household help, but that's just speculation that he took her back because without her, there'd be no household help. Particularly, I'm, I'm pretty sure in the book I include Paul's notebook, he had jotted down crimes of Lizzie as if he was starting to create a case book against her. And to me, that almost seemed like Maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Maybe Lizzie saw this and thought, here's a guy who's going to turn me in or take this whole thing and turn it into something where he's manipulating the entire scene. Because uh, it seemed like in the end that Lizzie was trying to manipulate it so she would have his pension, his house, and she just couldn't wait <laughs> for as long as it took for uh, an older gentleman to pass away, sadly. So she's arrested after the discovery of the two women in the crawl space under the barn. And then they find Paul's body under the floorboards. She's dumped the gun and jewelry in the outhouse. And one of the things found is a ring with the initials SJM, Sarah McQuillan who ended up being the younger of her two female victims. Yes, Sarah Jane. Was her name Sarah Jane McQuillan? Um, yeah, on that 
note there there was the ring SGM and then a nephew so it would have been a cousin of Sarah Jane actually came forward and thought he recognized her from the picture in the paper there was a post-mortem illustration done and went over to the house identify well I believe the body was somewhere else at that time but he identified the body then the father Thomas McQuillan came over identified the body and without even seeing his wife because she was in such a bad state of composition at that point they identified that yeah Lizzie was this woman who had shown up at their house claimed to be Mrs. Smith and wanted someone to work as a household servant for above average wages at the time so Lizzie traveled which was an overnight trip in a buckboard wagon she traveled from Burlingham to Newburgh New York you know sleeping over in in the Newburgh region because it's a long trip picked up a victim brought them home and killed them then she went back Sarah Jane said she didn't want to go the mother went first so she comes back tells uh, the family the McQuillan family that your mother has fallen down she broke her leg or ankle I need you Sarah Jane I need you to come and help your mother during this time so she went back this this entirely long trip from Burlingham to Newburgh and picked up her second victim now at this time Paul is is already dead so you could speculate whether this was revenge to the McQuillan family uh, had she seen their names posted at there was there's basically a job board at Mrs. Smith's or JB Smith's in Newburgh where Lizzie had often gone for work so it seems like she must have seen the McQuillan women were advertising or put a post up to let themselves out for household help because Lizzie was clever enough to put this away in the back of her brain and she shows up at their house to pick them up so yeah it it definitely looks like revenge against Thomas McClellan because she really didn't even know these women these are two women she had no other prior contact with but she had had prior contact with the father Thomas McClellan why the need for revenge what would that have been for well that's tough I one thing you could speculate is that when Lizzie was 14, she dated Thomas McQuillan's son, Nathaniel, I believe his name was, without looking at my notes. Uh, and I tried desperately to do a search for Nathaniel McQuillan. He basically fell off the map. He was not in Lizzie's life anymore. So I don't know if if she, it'd be hard to imagine that she was pining away for someone when she was 14 perhaps she was mistreated at that time by uh, Thomas McQuillan I can't say she never confessed that she might have had a revenge motive for her father her father seemed to be promised a job 
and then the job didn't materialize? Did Lizzie think this led her father to ruin? To, Because uh, her, her father was said to have died on the streets of Nuremberg out of his head, kind of insane. So whether that's because it's in the family or just life itself took its toll on the man, I really don't know. But I can imagine Lizzie had some reason to be angry at Thomas McQuillan because even uh, McQuillan thought he was most likely Lizzie's next victim after the two women. So again, when they discovered the bodies of the two women, Sarah's mother was in a further state of decomposition, which makes sense because she would have been there a couple of days earlier She was killed before Lizzie had gone to get her daughter, Sarah, who would then be killed after. Yes, correct. Plus, it's uh, mid to late August at that time. So, yeah, that would have attributed to any decomposition. But, um, again, we could just speculate. If you imagine Lizzie kills her husband... And then asks a woman over who's a cleaning woman, is Lizzie asking for help cleaning up a crime scene and then going to kill whoever helps her clean up the crime scene? Or was it too much to dispose of, I mean, dig a hole in the kitchen? Did she call, did she go and get help to dig a hole? Did she, you know, get help to get rid of his body or the blood and all that and these women were so horrified as anyone would be that you know they overreacted and probably lizzie just killed them or she could have just held a gun to their heads and demanded uh, they clean up the mess yeah she had a weapon there's no doubt in my mind that she um, had a weapon and knew how to use it 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 was almost uncanny how good a shot she was, but there's no telling how far away she was either. Another quick break. We will return momentarily. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. 
Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Back to the interview. After her arrest, as she was escorted into town, as you've said, to the local justice's home because because there wasn't a jail to hold her in, word spread fast, and she was soon surrounded by people jeering, taunting her, screaming, uh, get a rope. And I found her reaction to all of this uh, interesting. Most people in her situation would have been scared a little, frightened to find themselves in a situation like this. But when two young men step in front of her and start making faces at her, she viciously kicks one of them in the groin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I think, uh, yeah, and something similar happened during the actual trial where she... um, she tried she tried desperately to get someone who just walked too close to her during the trial and the person managed to just like have a good reaction time i think is what happened but yeah I, she was an opportunist and i i'm not sure if she was just very self confident like she was i mean i'm sure you remember the sections where she had tried to be wrestled down so that she could be examined. She had a fierce strength. And I just wonder if she just wasn't as afraid uh, as afraid of people as you might think someone should be in that situation. Perhaps being someone who deals out death the way she did gave her a very different viewpoint. Right. There is a very interesting scene in your book where she comes very close to being lynched. There's a man known as Jim who had a rope in his hand. He, he tried to instigate the mob to help him put it around her neck. And Constable Scott, assigned to protect her, he, he stepped in and diffused the tension quite adeptly, right? Yeah, yeah, that was uh, pretty much verbatim as it was uh, reported in the paper of her. It was during the time she was being transported to Monticello, being uh, in a uh, in basically a tourist wagon. So instead of tourists coming to her, Lizzie was now paraded on her way to Monticello. She was paraded past troops of people. So they could all give her a send-off. Uh, she wasn't given what we would think is security or privacy. Uh, maybe even right now we'd be worried about tainting the jury pool. None of that was going on. I mean, I even think there are times during the trial where Lizzie could have 
claimed there was a mistrial, uh, that she was poorly represented. But at the same time, she didn't attempt to represent herself in any way. You, you do make mention of a mysterious man uh, neighbors saw with Lizzie. He was shielding his face, averting his eyes as, as he traveled with her. Yeah, that, there was two incidences where Lizzie was seen with someone else that may or may not have been Paul. Uh, one was by a neighbor who saw them at nighttime kind of cavorting and dancing around in their yard. And it sounds very strange. Um, they thought it was Lizzie, but they couldn't see. It was dark, and they thought the other person might have been Paul. But they couldn't, again, they couldn't see. It was dark. The other incidents happened when Lizzie was driving the buckboard wagon. There was a passenger, and apparently there was a point in the road where she wanted to turn around, but it was kind of tight. So someone offered to take, a bystander offered to take the reins of the horse and try and walk it through a tighter turn. They said there was a passenger in the vehicle who looked like a man, averting the view averting their gaze hiding their face it's a very strange situation in that if it was paul there would be no reason to hide his face it seems like at the time levi rogers might have been serving time so you can't really say it was him so who was it did lizzie have more accomplices in the the newburgh bridge gang or people who perhaps came to the house, you know, now that Lizzie had a house, she could probably provide care packages for other people who rob, steal people off the road if she actually did have accomplices. You never know. It's hard to say. It's really hard to go back and say what exactly happened there. I felt it was worth reporting. Um, I did find certain instances or certain newspaper articles where some people seem to be trying to inject themselves into the case just the way we have nowadays where, um, oh, they might say, oh, I saw him. He came over and talked to, you know, some famous serial killer talked to me, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're injecting themselves into the case. To me, that seems something I could dismiss. Um, one in particular with Lizzie, there was a few, but there was one in particular who said Lizzie stayed with them on the way to Newburgh, and they said Lizzie woke up in the morning and or some and threatened to come back and kill them all, and it just seemed to me to be kind of didn't really fit the scene, so I didn't include it. Whether or not it was true or false, I can't say, but it seemed to me it certainly didn't fit. Lizzie's modus, modus operandi at the time of actually trying to get these victims, go to Newburgh, pick up the victims, bring them back to her house. This was a sensational crime during its day, but just the year before, in 1892, one far more sensational, um, one that centered around another woman named Lizzie, 
uh, grabbed headlines, Lizzie Borden. And it's kind of curious that there are two murderers named Lizzie, one on the heels of the other, uh, operating in the American East at about the same time. Yeah, it's very strange. And people even ask me today, it's like, what is it with Lizzie's? And and it's, you know, I, I can't say what it is or even what it was at the time. Um, it seems as though the big shock and the and the thing that connects them the most is that in in a, in a society where women or perhaps i'm talking about the late victorian society women being marginalized and you know have to sit on the sidelines and quietly hold their hands in their lap we had women breaking out of that mold in a way that was just more than society can completely comprehend. And they both had the name Lizzie. It was, it's just simply bizarre and might've actually led somewhat to the obscurity or how obscure Lizzie Halliday's story has become because it, it, they were so closely associated in time frame. yet Lizzie Borden's story has really uh, survived the test of time to, in an unbelievable way. Right. Yeah. So I did really want to ask you about this. Uh, this interview was quite a coup for Nellie Bly, but Sheriff Beecher, you write, was also really excited to see this happen. Uh, her, her exclusive interview with Lizzie and Bly was at the height of her popularity at this time. She had just finished her solo trip around the world she was internationally known, respected, and I mean, I mean, imagine Barbara Walters, I guess, at her peak, scoring a television interview with a controversial guest. Um, oh, exactly. It was the same thing for Nellie Bly and her interview with Lizzie Halliday. Can you give us an idea of, of the atmosphere when she arrived, her observations regarding Lizzie, their interactions uh, which actually happened over the course of two meetings, not just one. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Nellie Bly is and continues to be a fascinating woman, a character almost out of a comic book with, yeah, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, a pioneer at a time again, the Victorian era, when women were marginalized. And she didn't accept that. She didn't accept uh, how she was to be defined. She worked very hard to become something different. And she did. And she managed to arrange this interview and, and come upstate. Uh, you get a distinct impression from the tenor of the interview that Nellie Bly wanted desperately to break the case and felt that she might have the psychological means to to get through to Lizzie. Um, and she does try a couple of methods. You know, initially it's it's warmth. Um, but Nellie is not getting the warmth back, so she kind of defines Lizzie as cold impersonal having a cold heart which was 
the title of this two-part series, I believe it was the woman, the woman with a cold heart. Was that it? Uh, I'm drawing a blank, but I mean, I'm sure Lizzie herself read the article, you know, and this is, it's packaged in, in the uh, New York world on Sundays in two parts to help sell papers. I mean, it's very smart, very effective. And the interview not only provides a wealth of information, but Nellie Bly sends reporters far and wide to research Lizzie's story before talking to Lizzie because she wants to have all the cards in her hand. She wants to be holding a lot of information, and she does she does pull information on Lizzie, making her quite aware that she knows who she is, where she's from. And I used a lot of that book, a lot of I, I'm sorry, a lot of that interview is throughout the book. I know it the interview doesn't come in till the end, but since the interview had so much biographical information in itself, it was it was a treasure trove of information. And you know, I I owe a tremendous Thank you, uh, a debt of gratitude to Nellie Bly for that interview, because I think we'd all be much deeper in the dark as to uh, who Lizzie Halliday was, where she came from, and what her personality was like. Would you mind summarizing what Lizzie claimed happened to the three people she was accused of killing? Yeah, Lizzie insinuates Thomas McQuillan and these two women, uh, his wife and uh, I believe stepdaughter is a better description, come over to the house willingly. They're going to have food and they're going to swap wives or in this case for Thomas, it's family members with Paul and Lizzie is told by Paul that she's going to, she is expected to uh, participate in this. And she's somehow watching the whole thing from outside after being hit on the head and insulted by Paul because she wouldn't do such a horrible thing as um, extramarital affairs with your husband and, and, and other people. So, in a way, she's tarnishing the reputation of her deceased husband. She's tarnishing the reputation of deceased women, Thomas McQuillan, and she's taking the opportunity in a very repressive Victorian world to say how horrible these people were. Um, The other thing she describes is a series of bandits who live on the road and um, uh, they take people out and bump into him on the road and and she explained that these bad people they they kill them they cut them up wrap them up into individual pieces no bigger than she says a pound and throw them into the river so if you can imagine how absurd that is that you would uh dismember an individual that's maybe 170, 220 pounds and turn them into one pound packages so you can dispose of 
It's just absurd, but it's what Lizzie thought was a plausible explanation. In my opinion, her excuses, her lies, her deceit is peppered with the truth. It's up to us to understand that Lizzie is often talking about herself or her own exploits or people she knew. It's very hard to decipher where the lies begin and the truth is, but we know for a fact that she's responsible for killing Paul, burying him, killing these two women. Um, it couldn't have happened any other way. The motive is the biggest uh, mystery. Unfortunately, you know, we may never know what was going through her head. It might have just been madness. Uh, I also researched forensic weather, and during roughly the week that Paul would have been killed, there was a huge hurricane that came up the coast. Now, since we don't know the exact day that Paul was killed because he was in an advanced state of decomposition under the floor, we don't know he was actually killed during that storm. But what I can tell you is during the storm of 1888, she had a mental breakdown, set fire to her house, and left. So as a woman who has deep mental problems, it does suggest a pattern. If that storm happened the same day, maybe even period of time uh, where Paul was killed, who knows? Maybe, I don't know if it's atmospheric, you know, that affects someone who's mentally ill, affects her chemically, emotionally, or just scares her completely in the sense that nature is an all-powerful force, far more powerful than she is. Well, we, we've definitely gone over our, our allotted time here. There's more in the book we're not able to get to. Um, details on her trial. She ultimately serves time in a state hospital for the criminally insane, where she commits a horrific murder. Again, the details are in your book. But, but I want to ask you this, because it's not really talked about in your book, per se, but it is all over the internet when you Google Lizzie Halliday. Comparisons between her and Jack the Ripper, which seem pretty ridiculous when looking at the facts. Where did these claims come from, these comparisons to Jack the Ripper? Um, I believe that the mythology around that was started while she was incarcerated in Monticello awaiting a trial. I believe it was started by Harrison Beecher, the sheriff there, who might have just speculated on a whim, or it might have just been that the sheriff thought that the attention that the that the jail and, and the county was getting was a good thing or somehow could benefit them. Um, it, it's been pretty much dismissed by everybody because of the locate, like her location. She couldn't have been in two places at once. Uh, she was not, she had never headed back uh, across the Atlantic 
and there's no record to believe that she ever headed back across the Atlantic, which would have been what had had to happen. Uh, Otherwise, you'd have to assume she waited to emigrate to America after committing these uh, Whitechapel murders. But I believe it was really just someone saying, what a horrible person, what a horrible crime. Imagine if that's the same person who did this. And Lizzie was actually approached with that question, whether or not she was Jack the Ripper. And she said, what do you consider me, an elephant? And she used uh, the derogatory term elephant to to refer to a man. So for some reason, Lizzie genuinely felt that Jack the Ripper was a man, and it was not her. So um, I don't believe it was Lizzie. I, I just think that it's it was the same time frame. So they said, a horrible killer. Perhaps it was her. And minus her final murder, which again, listeners can explore on their own, uh, which involved a, a pair of scissors. She used fire and a gun to murder her victims at the Halliday Farm. Certainly not even remotely close to Jack the Ripper's M.O. Right. Yeah. Entirely different um, set of circumstances. And Lizzie, um, as you mentioned, she went on her, her, she was the first woman in the world sentenced to die in the electric chair. That was pardoned. She went on to spend the rest of her life at an institution for the criminally insane, where she continued her reign of terror. Um, the yeah, the book covers that time in Matawan, as well as a lot of a few events that happened after her death that were noteworthy. Yeah, it's quite a story. Uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about. You've spoken about Sheriff Beecher, who seemed to be very kind to her, and his wife was as well, despite the fact that Lizzie tried to strangle her at one point. But after the verdict came in, as Sheriff Beecher was leading Lizzie out of the courtroom, she decided to bite him really, really hard, right? Yeah, she, uh, Sheriff Beecher was nice to her, as you said, and he had assured her that he was going to be by her side, escorting her in and out of the courtroom, as it is the job of either a sheriff or a deputy, and stay with her so that she felt more secure. Well, right after the trial, right after uh, being sentenced, I, I believe it was after the sentencing, not after the trial. She, uh, Sheriff Beecher was escorting her out. He had one hand close to a shoulder, the other like on an arm. And she turned and just sank her teeth into his hand without mercy. And uh, it led to an infection so bad that he, uh, he almost lost his hand. Now, there, there's rumors out there that uh, he did have to have his hand hand amputated and that uh, Liz, the, the, the rumors were that Lizzie had a poisonous bite. I'm, I'm sure he had, she had unclean teeth, but I don't think she had venom. Uh, 
that would be pretty awesome if she did. But uh, it was just, he even had a gloved hand on her. She bit straight through what was a pigskin glove and, and did that much damage. It's, uh, it just proves that you don't want to get close to Lizzie. Um, I definitely would not want, have wanted to been her biographer had she been alive. <laughs> That's all I can say. Uh, she was a dangerous person to be close to emotionally or physically. That's when you were in the most danger, when you were close to her, whether it was her son, her husband, the sheriff set to protect her after a trial. She was a deeply disturbed and dangerous individual. Uh, which brings up one more thing. There were people, including Paul's children, that believed that Lizzie had the power to control people that she had some extra special ability to mesmerize. And it had something to do with her head, right? Yes. Uh, she would brag that um, she had a double whirl in her, in her hair. And that's basically where your part, the part of your hair starts at like a whirl and then move, usually moves forward. She had a double whirl in her head and claims that Napoleon had the same thing, and this gave her the power of control over others, and everybody was powerless around her. Um, I've, I had never come across this before. In, in, my nephew has the double roll in his head. He's not crazy. He doesn't try and control people. <laughs> um <laughs> I've seen it. That's what I'm saying. I've seen it on my nephew. It exists. And there's no reason to believe that in itself either drives you mad or gives you control over other people. But she associated herself with Napoleon. So I would say that just actually proves that she was uh, much like a serial killer needed to deep, be deeply in control of other people and was threatened if they were not. Well, so for people who want to learn more about you and your work, where can we direct them? Well, my book is available on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Um, smaller bookstores may have to order it. Uh, I can be my social media. The only social media I do is Instagram, which is, at Killing Time Catskills, just one word. And uh, let's see, I, I do have uh, books available that are signed, can be ordered directly. Uh, you can email me if you're interested in, say, a book club or a book chat, a book talk at your bookstore. Uh, I love independent bookstores. I love libraries, historic societies. You can reach me at killingtimecatskills at gmail.com. It's a good topic for a, a book club uh, because uh, one of the questions I asked myself while reading it was Lizzie a serial killer? Does she fit the generally accepted definition of what a serial killer is? 
Right. I it it's debatable. I I believe I tried to su- summarize this in the uh, end of the book that I believe she derived sexual satisfaction from killing, and in that sense, I would define her as serial killer. Uh, also, her last murder, as you hinted at, was committed with a pair of scissors, which uh, stabbing in in an in, in, in intensity the way she did. Uh, is usually a crime of passion, but also, in her case, absolute control also. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. I love your show, and I'm going to, as soon as we hang up, I'm going to go back to uh, true crime. That's what I do. Again, I've been speaking to Kevin Owen, His book is called Killing Time in the Catskills, The Twisted Tale of the Catskill Ripper, Elizabeth Lizzie McNally Halliday. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.